This message was presented at the GYC 2017 conference, Arise, in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. All right, well, let's, let's start, and let's start with a word of prayer. Lord God, our Father, we thank you so much for life, for bringing us together, for the opportunity to draw closer to you. And Lord, I want to thank you so much for each and every person who has come to this seminar, each and every person who has an, uh, an interest and a desire to reach one of these uh, wealthy, worldly, and well-educated people who are in their lives. And so, Lord, as we present, as we share this morning, I pray for the Holy Spirit to be with us, uh, to be upon each and every individual as they receive the message, and upon Cynthia and myself as we present. We pray that every word would be from you, and that uh, you would be the one teaching us this morning. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Good morning. My name is David Kim. Uh, my co, uh, my ministry partner is Cynthia Nojima. We're going to do brief introductions because um, what, what I've figured out in the program booklet as well as online is that our bios are actually not anywhere. And so you might actually be wondering why are you here and why do we have anything to say about reaching the wealthy, worldly, and well-educated. And so without boring you with the details, um, with myself, so I, my bachelor's, I have a bachelor's and master's in cello performance. I was uh, in the Hong Kong Philharmonic, and then I switched careers into corporate America. Uh, I went to, uh, I did my MBA at Stanford. Uh, I worked at Bain & Company, which actually Cynthia currently works at Bain & Company, but that's purely coincidental. We didn't meet through Bain. Uh, but uh, Bain & Company, uh, for those of you who are not familiar with Bain, it's a, a strategy consulting firm. Uh, and you may remember Mitt Romney, who ran for president. He was our CEO uh, a few years back. Uh, after that, I joined uh, a financial services company called the Vanguard Group, uh, where I now uh, run the Japan business, uh, which is why I live in Tokyo. And so, um, I'm sorry. Is it on the is it on the app? I couldn't find it on the app. I don't have the app. So. Okay. So, all right. Well, if you need more detail, you can go to the app. Um, but what I will say is more relevant to the seminar is I was heart converted eight years ago and I realized uh, before that I had never been a witness in any way, shape or form. In fact, maybe I had been an anti-witness um, despite having grown up in the church. But after uh, eight years ago, the Lord really led uh, me on a journey of having a heart burden to reach my peers. We have so many ways, so many methods, so many programs of, me, of um, essentially witnessing to strangers in our church, whether it's going door to door, whether it's doing public uh, evangelism, and those are all great, but those are witnessing to strangers. Um, and I had a burden for my peers, and that's what, has, what you'll see today uh, over the next five sessions is the uh, culmination of, uh, of a journey that the Lord has been leading me on for the last uh, eight years. Uh, Cynthia? Sure, so good morning, everyone. Thanks so much for coming. I had a come, kind of a similar story to David. I actually also was raised in the church, but I um, wasn't truly heart converted until after my undergrad. So I got my bachelor's degree in chemical engineering and then had a very different experience being a 
pseudo-Christian in a public campus. Then I had a heart conversion experience, and um, I was to actually say before I had a heart conversion experience, I started as a management consultant which, at the firm that I'm currently at. I left, joined Bain Capital, which is a private equity fund, and that's when I met David, and we started thinking about how to build this ministry. I had a heart conversion experience and then went to business school at Harvard and then came back about a year and a half ago. And so now I'm back at my firm. So that's really what happened with me. And I'll, I'll share a lot of examples of how I took the tools that I learned with David and used them in a place like the Harvard Business School and my current firm as well. Thank you, Cynthia. I'm sorry. I am. I don't know if it's me or you, but... Maybe I need to... Maybe the bass in your voice is too booming. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, So as we get going here, I just want to say a couple other logistical things. One is we welcome questions. Uh, Now, some of the questions we may be able to answer right on the spot. Some of the questions we might say, hey, we're going to talk about that in a future session, so please hold your question. Other questions we might say, hey, come talk to us at the booth or or at a break or something like that. But we do welcome questions, and and we'll do our best to manage the time. Sometimes people like to do, like, presentation and then Q&A, but we're happy to take questions as we go, as long as you are uh, okay with us either answering it or not, depending on the circumstance. Speaking of the booth, we do have a booth. The Nicodemus Society is the name of our our ministry. Uh, We're at uh, booth number 309, so we'd love for you to come by. Um, Also, we would uh, love for you to, at at some point, maybe with your device or you could come to the booth, sign up for our email distribution list. Uh, We won't spam you. In fact, we don't really send that many emails because, as you just heard, we both have full-time jobs. This is not what we do for a living. But um, when we have uh, programs or resources, uh, you will be able to be updated about that. There's also a link to um, uh, request a speaker, because a lot lot of what we do is we go to church groups or college groups or um, just GYC, and we do seminars on how to reach the wealthy, worldly, and well-educated. And sometimes people ask, can I get the slides? And the answer is yes, but you need to sign up for the email link because we will, after GYC is all said and done and we get a chance to breathe, we will send out a link to the materials or a version of the materials through the, um, through the email distribution list. So if you're interested in getting the slides, uh, it's great. Uh, you just need to be on the email distribution list. And so you can do that by going to our website, which is nicodemussociety.org, nicodemussociety.org, uh, or you can come to the booth and sign up as well. And actually, the email is on, excuse me, the website is on that little postcard that you received earlier today. All right, so let's get going here. This is not just a technical workshop. We actually have some very specific objectives and aspirations for you. And I know that there's so many great um, seminars here at GYC, and it's very tempting to want to jump around. And you're welcome to jump around. Uh, we will not lock the doors. Uh, you're free to, uh, to move and, and jump around. But what we, will, what we will say is this, that all five of these sessions are cumulative. They build up one upon the other. So you won't get the full methodology unless you stay for the five sessions. So, so that's, um, that's just the caveat I would have uh, to the extent you want to jump around. They all build on each other. Um, Over the course of this next five sessions, there are a few specific aspirations we have for you. One is that you would recognize your own heart condition. 
Uh, we have a methodology for this, and what you'll see is one of the first steps is recognizing your heart condition and making sure that you are a heart-converted Seventh-day Adventist Christian. So recognize your heart condition. Go deeper with God. As we talk, we would really encourage you to reflect on what is being shared and reflect on your own life. Uh, this will be a challenging set of seminars. Um, in order to witness to the wealthy, worldly, and well-educated, you need to be at the top of your game. And I don't mean just you know, athletically or intellectually or, or any of that, but even spiritually. Uh, as you will see, this is the hardest group to reach. And so you, you will need to be like an Olympic-level spiritual athlete in order to be able to um, be effective in this, uh, in this uh, community. So go deeper with God. Uh, develop a heart burden, uh, a burden to reach W3s. I often get the question when I do these seminars, why should we even care? I get the, I, I, almost every time I do the seminar, I get the question, why should we even care about reaching the W3s? I thought Jesus was only about reaching the poor and the sick and the wretched. And what you'll see is that, in fact, uh, we are supposed to care, but we are supposed to prioritize them first. And so we'll walk you through all of that. Um, and then there's some real methodology here, how to, how, to, um, how to attract and win souls amongst the W3s. And it is the most difficult uh, group to reach, but we'll show you how to do it. And the bottom line is we want you to come out of here with a fully transformed life, totally committed to Jesus Christ and our gospel mission. And that's a tall order, but by the Holy Spirit and by your engagement, uh, we believe that we can have an impact, not just in your head knowledge, but in your heart conversion today. So let's pray for that. So with that, I will turn it over to Cynthia, and she'll take us through the next uh, section here. So we have a lot to cover. Um, like, I, like David was saying, everything kind of builds on top of each other. So please come back if you find this interesting and something that you'd like to actually put into practice. This is our agenda. This is not actually matching to each of the five sessions. We're going to try to get as many of these topics covered as fast as possible so that we might have time to do things like role-playing and do more live examples. So this is the topics that we're going to be covering over the next five sessions. But like I said, it's in order, but it's not necessarily cumulative. That's not a good spot. <laughs> so the, we're going to start with the case for reaching W3s. So this is a, a little bit about why is this so important? Why are we talking about this? Why are we here? Heart conversion, David touched on this a little bit about how two things need to really happen for you to be fully prepared to share the gospel effectively with this group. One is heart conversion and two is life transformation. So we'll go a little bit through why that's important and what are some of the things we've learned from our experience to make that happen. And then finally, um, more practically, you'll have uh, uh, two pieces which are attracting spiritual interests and studying with W3s. So this is literally how do you get from, okay, I'm interested, I really feel a burden, I'm passionate about doing this. How do I do this in practice? And how do you make this happen in a way that's supernatural that doesn't sound right. Actually, very natural. It is supernatural because the Holy Spirit is working with you. Um, but it's also, a, how did you get that to lead to actual Bible studies with this, with, with this group of people? So that's the agenda. Again, it's not going to be like one segment, per, one subject per seminar. We're going to try to get through these as fast as possible so we have more time for interactive exercises. 
So let's start with the case. Before we actually jump into the details, I actually want to just get a little bit of information from you all. So if you'll take your phones out and go to menti.com. I'm actually going to flip the screen in a minute. So I'm going to ask you to take your phones out and answer this question. How do you feel, like right now, you came here so there's, you're clearly interested in, in this topic, but right now, how do you feel about sharing the gospel with this group we're calling the wealthy, the worldly, and the well-educated? So just please submit up to three words. You don't have to submit all three if you don't have three, but you can submit up to three words and let's see what, what pops. It's 230036. Oh, interesting. Okay. So this is actually some really interesting words, and not really surprising, I think. I hear this a lot from other people we've talked to. So I see words like unsure, intimidated, nervous, challenged, tough, I, but I also am encouraged to see words like excited, necessary, passionate, interested, needed. So I think that this is going, this is probably not surprising to those of you in the audience that this is a very challenging group to reach. But what I'm hoping you'll get out of this, is, per the aspirations that David mentioned, is that we're going to show you that this is extremely easy to do, actually. And it's going to be as natural and easy as talking about what you did last weekend. And you're going to be in a position where people are going to ask you for a Bible study. You don't actually have to be like knocking on their door and being like, hey, would you want to study with me? They're actually going to ask you. Does that sound good? Great. So let me flip back to our presentation. Just the, on that, man, Oops. this is bad. Bad. Okay. No feedback now, right? Okay. Just, just on that point, while she's flipping that back, um, w when I was doing the methodology that we're going to share with you today, uh, I, I was literally at a place in my life where I had more Bible studies than I could handle. So at my max, I had four at the same time, which was too much. I mean, it's just too many to have a full-time job and do that. But, um, but literally, you... When, if you do this and you do it in a consistent way in your life, you will get Bible studies uh, amongst the W3s. So um, it's good stuff. All right, <laughs> let's keep going. And actually, to that point, I, I had a, when I was in business school at Harvard, I literally prayed this prayer. I was like, Lord, if you send me people, I will just keep adding them to my calendar, and I'm trusting you to manage my time. And at my... I guess the highest number of Bible studies I had at one time in a week was five with people in, in my business school. So anyways, okay, so let's start with the first W. So we're gonna just define a few of these Ws since we're calling this group the wealthy, the worldly, and the well-educated. So with the wealthy, we're defining this as roughly the top 25% of the population in terms of annual income, which is equivalent to about 31 million households in the country or about 80 million people. So this is a really large 
this is a really large pool of people to reach with the gospel, right? In fact, it's about the size of the country of Turkey. So this is a really, really big group that we have to reach. The problem is that only 7% of us are actually in this category. So that is 928 W3s to one Adventist. Any quick thoughts on why that might be? Why do we only have one Adventist per 928 in this group? Yes? Yeah, that's definitely true. Yes? Yes. So that, that actually is true, and we're going to talk about how do you manage sort of the differences in what you would spend your time doing. But this is actually getting at why don't we have more Adventists who have access to this group, meaning they're your neighbors, they're your coworkers, they're your friends. Why don't we have just more representation? Yes. Yes, so that's true. Most people, I guess, the more money they have, they're more likely to not be dedicated to actually learning more about God and actually keeping their faith as well. Yes. Okay, yes, one more. I think this is true because people are open to the gospel when they're suffering, when they're in some sort of crisis. And so I think a lot of Adventism is based on people who are in the lower socioeconomic uh, levels because of their need in their life. But if you, I, I'll be curious to see the percentage, the longer versus an Adventist, because mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of upward mobility. Sure, which and actually... Unfortunately, once you're third or fourth generation Adventist, now you've gone to Loma Linda Medical School, but by then you don't have a heart conversion, you're just a cultural Adventist, and you have no burden for the lost. In fact, you may even question the Adventist message, and so you're not witnessing. So. I think that's some of our challenges with reaching this segment. Because you need to be a friend. Yeah. You have to be in that room to be a friend of that group in many respects. Yeah, absolutely. So these are all really great examples of why what might be contributing to this. Another piece that nobody has touched on yet is just aging, right? The Adventist church, on average, is older than the normal population. So people who are at the peak of their earning years are not actually Adventists, right? Like they're... Either they have left the church, which is unfortunate. Like a lot of my peers that I grew up with who grew up Adventist, they have since left the church. So that, that is a big piece of this, is a lot of our average age is much, much higher than the natural population. So this means that if you have access, if you're in this room and you have access to this group, we really, really need you to join the mission of trying to spread the gospel because we, we're at a low point. And, and reach 928 people. Yes. <laughs> and then you're done. So the second W, the worldly. This is not just a demographic. This is truly a mindset. And I'm gathering that I'm, I'm sure you probably have met people, and it has nothing to do with what your income bracket is. It's literally people that have the mindset of, you know, you're after prestige, you're after power, you're after money. Um, it's very much a mindset of how can I become as powerful as possible in my sphere of influence. And it's a mindset of just acquiring a lot of um, earthly uh, goals, et cetera. So this probably is not a surprise to people if you have friends and colleagues in this group. 
um, well-educated. So we do better, Adventists in general do better in this bucket because Adventists are very commonly um, degreed. And similarly, 33%, so about a third of Americans over the age of 25 have actually earned a bachelor's degree or above. So we do a lot better. I think it's around like 120-something um, well-educated people to one Adventist. So we do much better in this W. Um, now, this is the thing is, we talk about W3s, but this isn't exactly a new topic. I'm a little bit surprised that we as a church have not done more in this area because W3s have always been a part of God's people. So if you think about all the different Bible characters that are popping up on this screen, these are all people that, are, that I would argue fit in this group. And also, you're going to see at the very end, Nicodemus, who is sort of, we named uh, this whole ministry after, the Nicodema, after Nicodemus because Nicodemus was one of the W3s that Jesus himself reached with his method. And we're going to talk about what we can learn from Jesus about how he reached Nicodemus. So this is not a new topic, and we should be um, redoubling our efforts to reach this group of people. But we also touched on, I think several of you gave some examples of why this group has so few Adventists in it. And the point is, they are very difficult to reach. In fact, the Bible actually tells us in Psalms 19 a little bit about why that might be. So Psalm 19 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. And here's the key, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. So what this verse is saying is that God is sweeter than the honeycomb. The problem is if you flip over to Proverbs, it says that the satisfied soul loathes the honeycomb. So people who have what they think are all their needs met, I think one of you actually said that, is people who have their needs met, they don't have as much of an easy desire, right? If, you're, if you are suffering, if you are in pain, you are more likely to turn to God in that time of crisis. If you are satisfied, at least with your earthly needs, it's a little bit more challenging. And we're going to give some examples now about, in the Bible, um, what are some of the stumbling blocks that you see these group, this group of people go through. Let's look at the first example, the rich young ruler. Why did he have a problem with experiencing um, Jesus' gift of salvation? What was his stumbling block? Yes, it was possessions, right? So as a clue, as we go through this, um, both David and I have been to business school, and if you go to business school, they have a lot of acronyms for things. So we're going to call these the five Ps. So the first P is possessions. The rich young ruler had a, had a stumbling block. In, in this case, it was his possessions. Let's go to the next example, King Herod. Does anybody remember King Herod, the, the unfortunate gentleman who cut off the head of John the Baptist? I, I think John the Baptist was the unfortunate guy, actually. <laughs> I think Herod was just fine. <laughs> Herod, unfortunately, probably didn't have salvation, so I, that's why I call him unfortunate. But his P is peers and prestige, right? So he actually, if you read the story, he actually didn't really want to kill John the Baptist. He succumbed to peer pressure, and he was worried about how he would look if he went back on his promise. Um, another example, King Agrippa. So this is, the, this is another king who came into, um, into communication with Paul when Paul was on his way to Rome. And King Agrippa heard the gospel straight from the very educated and um, well-learned lips of Paul. And unfortunately, King Agrippa said, what, do you remember what he said? He said, you almost convinced me to be a Christian. 
he probably thought he had more time, et cetera, but unfortunately he pushed it back and was like, you know what, this is very compelling, but I'm not going to believe it right now. Ultimately though, all of these people stumble on this big block of pride because it's very humbling to have to admit when you're in a position of power or when you're in a position of, you've been very successful, at least in the earthly sphere of life, it's very difficult to admit that there's something you can't do, which is you cannot save yourself, right? You can't change your technically just selfish core. Everybody is selfish at their core and is always looking out for your own interests. Yes? Is that your last piece? Yes. Okay, so I have a question as I was thinking about these characters and so on. Wouldn't power be a P that comes into play here or, or, or is that part of everything you talk about? Or, or Certainly, yeah, for sure. We can, you, can, you can include power here. But effectively, what all this is saying is that these people, the reason why their satisfied soul loathes the honeycomb per Proverbs is because I argue that it is actually pride. Because if you're so used to the power, you're so used to having your, taking care of yourself and earning your way to whatever that objective was, to be the king, to be the president, to be the CEO, you're used to using your own power and your own strength to get those things done. So it's very difficult to be able to admit that you have to have somebody else to help you. You need God to actually do something for you that you absolutely can't do for yourself. Yes? Also, it depends on what kind of power is, what power of greed is, and power of love, or is it just an early possession kind of power? Yeah, but that's the context of power relationship. Did you also have a comment? Yeah, flip that around, though. That also means that dummy freeze could potentially be extremely effective as spreading the gospel. Yes. Have you read the slides already? <laughs> We're going to get right to that point. Glad you mentioned that, so keep that thought. Um, I'm actually going to turn it over to David to talk about what Ellen White actually had to say about this. Great, thank you. Thank you, Cynthia. All right, so there, when, when, uh, when we started preparing for this, um, this, this presentation, we did a lot of research into what the spirit of prophecy has to say about reaching the wealthy, worldly, and well-educated. And uh, it was quite amazing, actually, quite stunning to see the, one, the volume of uh, writings that she had and two, the, the, the content of what she said. And so we're going to give you a very quick overview of what the spirit of prophecy has to say about reaching the wealthy, worldly, and well-educated. And we start with the Wardleberry vision. Does anyone know what a Wardleberry is? I didn't know what a Wardleberry is either. They must have died out in the 1800s. But they're, they're like a blueberry but instead of being white inside, they're red inside. So now you won't be wondering what a whortleberry is the whole time I'm talking through this quote. So the whortleberry vision, she wrote, uh, wrote it down in 1886, and let, let's just go through this. I then took my berries and went to the wagon. So the context for this is that she is in vision going, and she is uh, with a group of believers, and they're going to what could best be described as the suburbs, it sounds like to a whortleberry orchard, okay? And so they're going to pick berries. That's, that's what they're doing in this vision. I then took my berries and went to the wagon. Said I, this is the nicest fruit that I have ever picked, and I have picked it close by while you have wearied yourselves by searching at a distance without success. Then all came to look at my fruit, said they. These are high bush berries, firm and good, we did not think we could find anything on the high bushes, so hunted only for low bush berries 
and we have found only a few of these. So what does she mean? Well, fortunately, she interprets it for us so we don't have to make it up. I am sure that the dreams that I have had of late teach me lessons that there is a neglect to get the better classes to become interested. While the poor classes are not to be neglected, neither should the higher and more intelligent classes be overlooked. I have been in dreams instructed that we overlook the fields close by to us to labor in far away fields and we pick very inferior berries when there are larger and a better quality of berries already to be gathered. And we are making a mistake in this kind of labor. She's not very subtle here, is she? She's saying that we need to be looking for high bush berries, and she is openly critical of the emphasis and focus on the low bush berries. And she does say uh, we, are, we are not to neglect the poor classes, but the problem is we are neglecting the better classes, or the, the W3s. And we are making a mistake in this kind of labor. I also want to make another point here. She says, we over, and she was instructed, right? So in dream, she was instructed, which means this is God. We overlook the fields close by to us to labor in faraway fields. If the only place that you are a witness or a missionary is somewhere that you need a passport, then I hope you feel just a little bit rebuked by this statement. Yeah, all the sources are here in the upper right corner in large print. I'm just <laughs> kidding. It's in very small print. This is from uh, uh, 21 Manuscript Releases, page 317. And again, if you'd like the slides, sign up for our email distribution list, and we'll send a link to how to get those. All right. Um, but yeah, if the only place you're a missionary is somewhere you need a passport, that's a big problem. And we ought, not to be, we ought not to be overlooking the fields close by. There's so much in the statement that will be covered later, um, but we could actually do the whole seminar based on this statement. Mm -hmm. um, but let's keep going. The W3s are soul burdened, and they require personal effort to be reached. This is from Six Testimonies. We talk and write much of the neglected poor, should not some attention be given also to the neglected rich? That's just very powerful language for me. The neglected rich. Have you ever even conceived of such a thing? Many look upon this class as hopeless. Thousands of wealthy men, and of course women, have gone to their graves unwarned because they have been judged by appearance and passed by as hopeless subjects. And in this statement, who is doing the judging? We are. We are judging these people as hopeless. But indifferent as they may appear, I have been shown that most of this class are soul burdened. There are thousands of rich men who are starving for spiritual food. Many in official life feel their need of something which they have not. Few among them go to church, for they feel they receive no benefit. The teaching they hear does not touch the soul. 
shall we make no personal effort on their behalf? So we're going to share a lot of um, personal stories as we've uh, talked with W3s in, in our lives. And one that I'd like to share right now is I was talking with a, um, I was talking with a colleague of mine at work. And she grew up in mainland China. And she is an Ivy League PhD astrophysicist. Like she is literally a rocket scientist. And so very intelligent, uh, you know, just very accomplished. And we were, um, you know, we're uh, actually we we're at a funeral of one of our work colleagues. And I was talking to another gentleman to my left. Uh, and we we're talking about, um, uh, well, it started out by him saying to me, well, so David Kim, what do you do on the weekends? What do you do for fun? And I said, well, most of my activities circle around family and faith. And he said, well, I love family. I love family activities. Which means what? He skipped over the faith part, right? So we're, we're, uh, this is a part of the method. You, you put out little breadcrumbs that people can respond to. And so I saw which one he responded to. So we talked about family activities, what we do on the weekend, and so forth. And then after we had talked about that for some time, I, I turned back and I said, so... Um, you know, I, I, go to, I go to church, uh, you know, faith is a part of what I do. Uh, how about you? Because it's a, it's a very natural question, right? I had volunteered something, and he didn't respond to it, so I just asked a very simple question. So what, what do you, you know, do you have any sort of faith practice? And he said, well, I'm an, I'm an atheist. And it immediately got very awkward, and I stopped talking. <laughs> Actually, that's not what happened. So uh, then I said, oh, why are you an atheist? Why should I assume that I know why he's an atheist? We always make assumptions about people. So I just asked, uh, so why are you an atheist? And he said, well, you know, I, I really can't buy the whole uh, creation thing. And so we started talking about creation and, and why I believe in creation and why he doesn't believe in creation. And then the, the uh, Chinese astrophysicist sitting, was sitting to our right, and she turned to us and said, hey, guys, what are you talking about? And I said, oh, you know, we're, we're talking about what we do on the weekend and the theory of origins. <laughs> That's exactly what I said. And she said, well, I'm an atheist. So I'm, now I'm surrounded by two atheists. And, and I asked her, well, why are you an atheist? This is actually a very simple methodology. It's very simple. I said, why are you an atheist? And she said, well, you know, I'm a scientist and, you know, I believe in science and also, I grew up in China, and uh, in China, you know, they, you really don't have religion in China. And then she, so she was explaining this to me, and then she said something that just uh, made my, I mean, I didn't visibly do this, but my jaw dropped to the floor. She said, but you know, I often wish that there were a God. So what did I say next? I said, well, there is a God. Let me tell you about him. And there are 28 fundamental beliefs. <laughs> no, I didn't do that. What did I do? What did I ask? Why, why do you wish there were a God? Yes, good. The word why is your friend. Why do you wish there were a God? And, uh, I, and she said, well, one, the, I'm an astrophysicist. And the universe is very hard to explain without some sort of governing power. 
Now this is the Ivy League PhD astrophysicist telling me why there actually needs to be a God. So I like it when I have my atheist friends tell me that. But that's part of the method. So she's telling me why there actually should be a God. So that was reason one. Reason two was, and I often think that if there were a God, I wouldn't feel so lonely. So these people all are soul burdened. And actually, I think you have an example here about this as well, right? I have many. You have many? Or did I, uh, did I jump the gun on you? I'll, I'll save it for the next. You'll save it? You're going to save yeah. it? You're going to keep us in suspense? I'll save it for the next one, okay. yeah. Next, the next example will keep you in suspense. All right. So, but these people are soul burdened, and they need personal effort, and we're going to talk about what that means. All right. Worldliness is a great barrier for these people. Today, God is seeking for souls among the high as well as the low. There are many like Cornelius, men whom he desires to connect with his church. Their sympathies are with the Lord's people, but the ties that bind them to the world hold them firmly. It requires moral courage for these men to take their position with the lowly ones. Special effort should be made for these souls who are in so great danger because of their responsibilities and associations. So here I can, have, I can actually bring up an example. Oh, good. So I work at a firm, again, it's a management consulting firm. Um, the head of my office, so this is a super, super senior director who's in charge of the entire office in Atlanta. He, um, he's currently the senior partner on my case, literally my case right now. And this is a few weeks ago, we were at a team dinner it's very common, by the way, when you start up a new case for my firm, you just sort of, it's a new group of people, you all kind of exchange what's the best way to work with me, and you kind of share a little bit about your working style and any personal preferences around working out, or are you an early riser, or do you like to work late in the evenings, et cetera. So whenever I do this, I always share with people, I do keep the Sabbath, and it's a special rest day for me, so I will not be reachable by email or phone for work purposes between Friday and Saturday sunset. So I did the same thing as usual amongst all of the other things we talked about. And a few weeks later, we have this team dinner where my entire team goes out and he happens to sit next to me. And he says, he turns to me at dinner and he's like, you know, Cynthia, I was really interested in what you said during our you know, team meeting. And you had said you, were, you keep the Sabbath and it's a really big part of your life. And he's like, I don't know anybody in our office who takes any kind of faith seriously like that. I would love to know more because I, like I said, I'm just really intrigued. I don't know anybody who does this. You know, you just literally was just like, I would be very interested in understanding why you believe in God and why, how this influences the way you live your life. So there's an example of people who literally, you might be the only person in their sphere of influence who actually has anything to say about God and faith and be able to explain it in a way that will appeal to them. And they are listening and they are interested. And they're noticing. I'll share some other examples later on about what you'd be surprised what people notice when you're, you don't think they're actually paying attention. All right. So we just said that they're worldly and it's a big barrier, but we should not let this worldliness deter us. Those who stand high in the world for their education, wealth, or calling are seldom addressed personally in regard to the interests of the soul, which is what we were just saying. Many Christian workers hesitate to approach these classes. We just saw that in the word cloud. But this should not be. 
This should not be. If a man were drowning, we would not stand by and see him perish because he was a lawyer, a merchant, or a judge. If we saw persons rushing over a precipice, we would not hesitate to urge them back, whatever might be their position or calling. Is that true? Yeah. Very true. Neither should we hesitate to warn men of the peril of the soul. None should be neglected because of their apparent, apparent devotion to worldly things. She's saying, we look at these people, and again, we judge them. And we say, what? they couldn't possibly be interested in God. They have everything they need. They have their four-car garage. They've got their nice house in the suburbs or, or whatever they got. They couldn't possibly be interested. They have, the world is their oyster, so to speak. So I have another example of this idea. In business school, if you go to Harvard, it's one of the most impressive places from a perspective of everybody there is super smart, very successful, right? They've, there's a reason why they, they went. And when I, when I first went, everybody does a great job of having a facade of having everything under control. They are always going to parties, taking lots of pictures. It's literally... Selfies. Um, yes, there's lots and lots of pictures being posted on Facebook and social media all the time. And people are always talking about the job offers they're getting, and everyone is obsessed with getting the most influential position or the highest paid position, et cetera. But what's, what I didn't realize until later is that a lot of these people I found out were going to the psychologist on campus. They were taking drugs to manage the stress and the pressure. And they were not particularly happy, frankly, um, when I got to know people on campus. And one person in particular, she was uh, a Jewish, Jewish by culture, but she's actually atheist. She was part of a small group uh, that I was um, in for one of my classes. We had like six people, and she was one of them. And we got to know each other a little bit. And she came up to me a few um, sessions after we were meeting, and she said, you know, Cynthia, I've noticed that when we all talk about our goals in life and we talk about the jobs we're trying to find while we're here, you don't seem to have the same priori priorities as the rest of us. And I don't understand why you're not particularly stressed about the job search or what you're going to do next. And, and she was like, I, I don't understand. Like, why, why, are, why are you not stressed about this stuff? And I was able to share a little bit with her because she is Jewish by background, and she was intrigued when I told her that a lot of what helps me keep the stress down is the fact that every week, every I have 24-hour period where I reset my priorities. I remember what's important in life, and I spend time with God and my family and my, and my faith. And she was very intrigued by that because she never had talked to somebody who kept the Sabbath that way. And so we had a lot of successive conversations around this point. And remember, she is atheist. So she doesn't believe that there is a God, but she was very intrigued by um, the ability of something like that to help you manage your stress and help you um, think about your priorities a little bit differently. So example of these people really do, they do seem like they have all their um, goals, they have their, all their careers in line, and they are extremely worldly, right? This is their entire mindset, but that doesn't mean that they don't actually need a God and they don't actually need the gift of peace that God offers to each one of us. I'll share another example. Uh, there was a colleague of mine uh, at work. Uh, he was relatively new to the company, um, and I had joined mid-career as he had. And so uh, I, you know, just to see how he's doing, checking in, I, I asked him uh, to, to lunch, and so we grabbed lunch in the, uh, 
in the uh, cafeteria, the company cafeteria. And so we're chit-chatting, hey, how's it going? And, and uh, you know, how's, uh, how's life? How's, how's uh, work treating you? You're, you're relatively new. And, and he had been having some challenges at work. Um, you know, it, it, you know, whenever you move to a new company, it can be very challenging, especially if the culture is very strong and there's a certain way of doing things. And, and he had come from a very different place. And so um, uh, I, had, uh, I, was, I was talking with him about this. And uh, he asked me, because we both came from a very similar background. He came from uh, strategy consulting. Uh, he came from uh, top MBA school. And so he said, so uh, David, you know, you, you joined relatively recently. Uh, how, how have you been able to uh, be successful here? And I gave him uh, three pieces of advice. The first two were sort of more normal kind of, uh, you know, typical types of advice like, oh, you should be a really good listener, you know, that kind of thing. But then the third thing I said was, uh, and you should be a good listener. I don't mean to diminish that. Um, but, uh, then the, but the third thing, and, and I think this is actually the most important thing, has been my prayer life. And I had no idea where this guy's coming from. I, I mean, I knew his background, but I, I had no idea if he had faith or not faith or anything like that. Um, I said, you know, but the, the most important thing that's been helpful to me is my prayer life, period. Stop. Wait. See what he has to say. So I was sitting there looking at him. He was looking at me and <laughs> got very awkward. No, I'm just kidding. Nothing ever gets awkward. Um, uh, and uh, he looks at me and says, tell me more about that. So I talked about my devotional life and what I do and blah, blah, blah. I get up early, et cetera, et cetera. And we, we, we got into a very, uh, very deep conversation about uh, faith and religion and Christianity. Uh, and then at a certain point of the conversation, I turned it back to him. I said, uh, so, you know, I've been talking a lot, but what about you? Uh, do you, you know, do you come from a certain faith background or, or anything like that? And he said, um, well, I'm an atheist. A lot of atheists. Uh, he said, I'm an atheist, but what you've described, I need. Like that's just like that. What you got, I need that. And so that actually led to like three years of Bible studies. And uh, over the course of those three years of Bible studies, uh, the Lord took him from being a, an atheist. And I don't mean one of these intellectually lazy atheists, people who say they're atheists because they think it's cool to say you're an atheist. Like he was raised atheist, the way some of us might have been raised Seventh-day Adventist. He was raised atheist. Like his father would have him read atheist books growing up as a child. So the Lord took him from that through our Bible studies, took him from that to at our last Bible study before I moved to Japan, we were talking about, so, you know, how are you feeling? How are you thinking? What do you think about all this stuff we've been talking about? And he said, you know what? I acknowledge the consistency and the logic of what you're presenting. He said, I acknowledge the plausibility of it. And I acknowledge that this is the, a better way to live. So he got, went from being a hardcore atheist to actually, I would, say, I, I would say he was an aspirational Christian. He actually said, I would love to buy into this. He had one problem, which was creation, which we'll talk about later. But um, we should not be neglecting these people. Like, 
I had no idea he would say, what you have, I need. But there are people in your world, in your sphere of influence, who are thinking the exact same thing if only someone would give them an opportunity. Yes? Rancho Santa Fe, yes. all right. And uh, it still hurt. I met a whole bunch of her friends who are also Asian, mm -hmm. Chinese, and wealthy, wealthy families. Mm -hmm. They're all around 40s. And um, when, it read, when I was looking on the website, it just totally, totally described this group. Yeah. They go to church. They don't receive nothing. Yeah, it's frustrating, right? To try to reach these people. Because every time when she, my friend has a need, mm -hmm. she'll call me. She said she feels uh, spiritually very um, low with her husband. And then she calls. And then she says she's okay. And then no more. So, for the benefit of the recording, let me summarize what you said. So, you know some very wealthy uh, Chinese families in the San Diego area. And you feel frustrated because you know that there's a need. You know that there are people who've actually expressed that need to you. And as you're seeing these slides, it's really impacting you uh, as to not, not only is this something you're experiencing. And I had the same, you know, when I'd been sensing this, and then when I did this research, I felt such a sense of uh, gratification, actually, because uh, you know, Spirit of Prophecy is talking about these things that I've been experiencing. And it just really reaffirms this experience. So um, we are going to talk in detail in the next sessions about how to work with people like you're describing. So thank you very much for that. Um, let's keep going just because we have a few minutes left here. Why are we neglecting them? This is really important. We are, there are intelligent men and women who we are afraid to work for, fearing repulse. So she's, she's saying we're scaredy cats is what she's saying. We're afraid of being rejected. But earnest efforts should be made for the higher classes coming close to their hearts, visiting them, and using special wisdom. That means be really sharp. Using special wisdom to win them to the truth. This is a really important point. There should be no pushing, no sharp contention, 
but leading their minds out to investigate. So you remember the methodology, it's all about asking why. Oh, why do you think that? What do you think about that? Why do you think that? And then you can get atheist astrophysicists telling you that the universe actually needs a God. That is a much better way to share the gospel than to be perceived as thumping the Bible and trying to cram things, quote unquote, down people's throats. So never, 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 no pushing, no sharp contention, leading their minds out to investigate. And we see this in Jesus' example as well. He was always using questions and leading people to the right conclusions, not cramming things down people's uh, throats. One of the reasons why efforts have not heretofore been made for the higher classes, as I have presented before you, is a lack of faith and a lack of real courage in God. God can save anyone. God has that power. Now, of course, that person has to choose, but you're not the Holy Spirit. And so there are many times when I have to tell myself, I'm sure there are times when you have to tell yourself, it's like, you know, this is not about David being super compelling. I have to do my part, but it's about the Holy Spirit and giving the Holy Spirit a venue in which to do what the Holy Spirit does upon this person's heart. All right, W3 evangelism should be prioritized. Those who belong to the higher ranks of society are to be sought out with tender affection and brotherly regard. Men in business life, in high positions of trust, men with large inventive faculties and scientific insight, men of genius, teachers of the gospels whose minds have not been called out for the special truths of this time. These should be the first to hear the call. These should be the first to hear the call to them, the invitation must be given. These people are supposed to be prioritized first. And we have not even prioritized them at all at a church. And this is a rebuke to that. Now, why? The Lord desires that moneyed men, someone made this point earlier. The Lord desires that moneyed men shall be converted and act as his helping hand in reaching others. He desires that those who can help in the work of reform and restoration shall see the precious light of truth and be transformed in character and led to use their entrusted capital in his service. He would have them invest the means that he has lent them in doing good, in opening the way for the gospel to be preached to all classes nigh and afar off. And just as a small example of this, uh, who is the richest man in the world? Yes, it's Bill Gates. He, he, got the, he got the seat back. Yeah, Jeff had it for like a little bit, but uh, Bill is back. <laughs> Bill is back, and Bill has a net worth of $89, million, billion, $89 billion. So he alone, based on that net worth, could fund the world church, the whole world church, for 30 years. Now, you don't have to be Bill Gates, though, in order to... Be someone who is investing the means that the Lord has lent them. Uh, you know, your, your systematic giving, your, your tithes and offerings, could be hundreds of thousands or into the millions over a lifetime. And so this is one reason why Ellen White said that we should be prioritizing reaching the wealthy, worldly, and well-educated. 
But it's not just about money. It's also about their talents. The greatest men of this earth are not beyond the power of a wonder-working God. God will convert men who occupy responsible positions, men of intellect and influence. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, many will accept the divine principles. Converted to the truth, they will become agencies in the hand of God to communicate the light. They will have a special burden for other souls of this neglected class. Time and money will be consecrated to the work of the Lord, and new efficiency and power will be added to the church. There's a very practical reason why the Spirit of Prophecy tells us we should be uh, sharing the gospel with the wealthy, worldly, and well-educated, and we have been overlooking these people. However, they require a different approach. The intelligent, the refined, are altogether too much passed by. The hook is not baited to catch this class. And I just love that language. The hook is not baited to catch this class. And ways and methods are not prayerfully devised to reach them with truth that is able to make them wise unto salvation, which is why you're here, because you want ways and methods prayerfully devised to reach them with this truth. But the traditional ways that we do church, the traditional ways that we do evangelism tend not to work well. Not always. There are exceptions but they tend not to work well. And so we, we need to be doing something special for this group, and that's what we're going to be talking about. Most generally, the fashionable, the wealthy, the proud, understand by experience that happiness is not to be secured by the amount of money that they possess or by costly edifices and ornamental pictures. They want something they have not, but this class are attracted toward each other and is hard to find access. The rich left alone without any effort to save them become shut up more and more to their own ideas. Their own train of thoughts and associations lose eternity out of their reckoning. They grow more proud and selfish, hard-hearted and unimpressible, suspicious that everyone wants money. Access is a really important point. And the best person to access these people is you in your day-to-day -day life. And we're going to talk more about that in the next session. Some will ask, this is a, uh, really important, some will ask, can we not reach them with publications? There are many who cannot be reached in this way. It is personal effort that they need. So you can't just do a, um, what do they call it, uh, uh, a hit and run evangelism with these people. You know, when you like kind of run up to someone, hand them a glow track and run away. Uh, they need personal effort, personal relationship. And not that some people could be uh, um, reach with publications, but I will say that over the eight some years I've been sharing my faith, every single time I've shared a publication, whether it's a pamphlet or a book or a DVD or something, a website, it has never worked. And oftentimes it has actually shut down the conversation. And the reason for that is, is that when someone is watching a DVD, when someone is in a live Bible study with me and they have a question or they have an objection, I'm there to take down that objection immediately in the moment. But when someone is watching a DVD or reading a book and they see something they don't agree with, they just say, ah, I don't buy this. And then they turn it off. And so... Uh, this is a really important point. We, we cannot just expect the traditional kind of evangelism methods to work with these people. It is by no casual, accidental touch that wealthy, world-loving, world-worshipping souls can be drawn to Christ. These people are often the most difficult of access. Personal effort must be put forth. What happened? Hmm. It's odd. Just shut down. 
I think PowerPoint told me that we ran out of time, actually. <laughs> I think that's what just happened. Um, sorry about that. They are often the most difficult to access. Personal effort must be put forth for them by men and women imbued with the missionary spirit. Those will not fail or be discouraged. We're running out of time, so I'm going to go very quickly here. I, I love this quote, and you're going to see it a couple times because we love it so much. While he ministered to the poor, Jesus studied also ways, also to find ways of reaching the rich. He studied it. He sought the acquaintance of the wealthy and cultured Pharisee, the Jewish nobleman, and the Roman ruler. He accepted their invitations. He attended their feasts and made himself familiar with their interests and occupations. Why? So he could enjoy a good time? No, that he might gain access to their hearts and reveal to them the imperishable riches. Um, we're running out of time, so I'll, I'll save this example for later, but this is such an important point. There is so much that makes us different from the W3s. Our worldview, the things we do, the things we, even the way we eat can be very different. We have to find ways that we can have common ground with them, which is why we need to accept their invitations, attend their feasts, and make ourselves familiar with their interests and occupations so that we can gain access to their hearts, and reveal to them the imperishable riches. And I'll close with this. It requires more grace, more stern discipline of character, to work for God in the capacity of mechanic, merchant, lawyer, or farmer, carrying the precepts of Christianity into the ordinary business of life, than to labor as an acknowledged missionary in the open field. We always make a big deal about, like, you know, give up a year of your life or, you know, you know don't go in, into this lucrative career, but, you know, go into uh, Bible work. And, hey, uh, I, you know, those are really important, and different people have different callings. But if there are any of you in this room, and I suspect there are many of you in this room, who are already in careers or on a track, to do something with your life that is not being a pastor, is not being a Bible worker, is not being a, a divisional employee. You should be doing this. This is your mission field. Don't overlook the fields close by to you. And by the way, she's saying it is more difficult to do this. Why? It requires a strong spiritual nerve to bring religion into the workshop the business office, sanctifying the details of everyday life and ordering every transaction according to the standard of God's word. But this is what the Lord requires. Uh, I am the, uh, the, I think I mentioned, uh, the, the head of the Japan business uh, for my company. My employees are watching every single thing I do and say. And so regularly during the day, I have to be asking myself, okay, I'm about to make a decision. I'm about to send an email. I'm about to say something. How's this going to make Jesus look? That's hard. Very hard. But this is what the Lord requires of us. 
And so that's why we think of ourselves as global mission pioneers. Do you know what global mission pioneers are? Do you guys know that? It's, a, it's an initiative at the GC level. Pioneers are lay people who volunteer at least a year to establish a congregation in an unentered area within their own culture. Now we understand that W3s have their own culture, right? They have the advantage of knowing the culture, speaking the language, blending with the local people, and being far less expensive than overseas missionaries. I always say that the Lord has made me a Bible worker and he uses my company to pay me. So everyone wins. And by the way, who's paying the salaries of all these denominational workers? It's the laity. It's us paying our tithes and offerings. And so if everyone went into paid denominational work, who's going to pay for the denom denominational workers? So we need global mission pioneers who will reach the W3s and will close in asking, will you take up this challenge? And so if you will take up this challenge, please uh, stay for the next session because this is all about why we should be reaching these people. We haven't even touched on how to reach these people. So you really need to stay for that. And with that, let's uh, close this session off with a word of prayer and then we'll take a break. Lord God, our Father, we thank you that the Holy Spirit has been here, that has been touching people's hearts. I can see it as we, uh, as we hear the comments and as, as we look out on the faces of people you are moving in this room, Lord, and I pray that you would continue to be with us, that you continue to bless us and drive this conviction that we need to be global mission pioneers to the wealthy, worldly, and well-educated. Lord, we thank you for your many blessings, and we pray that you continue to be with us through the break. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2017 Conference Arise in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.